Well, good morning. Welcome to the Field Crops Virtual Breakfast. I'm Sarah Franzak. I'm an environmental management educator with Michigan State University Extension. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, we're going to post a survey for you to um, take a look at. It's a collection of demographic data um, from program participants. It's an important mandated aspect of all Michigan State University Extension programming. And this is voluntary and the information that you provide will not be used in any way to identify you personally, but rather as an anonymous member that participated in this program. Take a moment to answer the question and it's open on your screen. So we ask that you please mute yourself during the presentation, please sign in uh, with your first and last name over in, over in your name box, so it reads by your picture. So how you do that is you click on the participant list icon, find your name and hover, click, and then click one more or rename, then type your name into the window. So hopefully you've done that before. I mean, we're mid-season. So, so hopefully you guys have learned how to put your name in the boxes. And um, we ask that questions in the chat box, um, you put your questions in the chat box found at the bottom of the screen and use that chat box tool to talk with our, uh, our specialist this morning, who is Dr. Asan Ghani. Um, and this morning, he's going to be talking about combating excess water in the changing climate. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good, <clears throat> good morning, everyone. Welcome to the virtual breakfast. So I'm going to be talking about uh, dealing with heavy rainfall uh, that, that, uh, that comes with the excess water on the farm in a changing climate. This is a, this is a satellite image of our planet Earth. We also call it the blue planet. The surface is 70% uh, water and blue, like this image you see here. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful photo. Um, with this, with the with the over time, as the temperature of the globe has gone up, um, the atmosphere has been temperature going up. It holds more moisture, and then you've you probably most likely you've experienced heavy rainfall. The heavy intense rainfall, several inches in a short period of time, comes down, and it causes problems on the farm. So that heavy rainfall is becoming more frequent. The climate scientists are predicting it's going to become more frequent, and it, we've seen the effects in the uh, in our current current lives as well. So that brought brings about the flooding, and I mean recently we've seen the Kentucky uh, flooding and other parts of the world. We hear about flooding. Uh, there are certain ways we can deal with those things. I'm going to focus on the the farm level for this, for the downstream level is basically storing water on the landscape is gonna help with the flooding. The flooding is the most damaging economically out of all of the natural disasters. 
So let's take a look at some of the things we can do on the farm. What can we do there? Well, there's no silver bullet, but there are certain things that when you put them together, these suite of practices, things, uh, methods, they can help with this heavy rainfall. So the first thing is that you got to make sure that your drainage system on the farm does not have an underperformance issue. And th there's a lot to that. There's, uh, it could be part of the drain could become, you know, clogged with sediment or with roots or with um, the main size could be undersized and there's, you know, soil could be compacted and with certain, you know, many different things. I'm, I'm showing a screenshot on the bottom right. This is an extension bulletin that goes over these things that you, you need to look for. So that's, this is kind of a prerequisite to my talk. You wanna make sure, because if, if you do all of the other things and the system has a problem, let's say it's got a design problem or the main is undersized or something, something's wrong with the underperformance, then doing the other ones is, not, is gonna have a minimal effect. So you gotta make sure you don't have a underperformance. So when you do that, the first thing you wanna focus on is this improving soil health. This soil health is like it shows in here, it's the heart. It's the main foundation of the whole drainage system. It, it's gotta have a really good soil health. And here's a photo of a soil health, importance of the soil health. So what, with regenerative agriculture, where you store carbon and improve the soil health, these are the three things you, you can do in combination of each other, actually, having these minimum or no disturbance of the soil with no till and minimum tillage, having a cover on the, uh, on the surface with a cover crop, protecting the surface. This is important for improving soil health. And also in that underperformance, I, I wrote that when you have the cover, and you get this heavy rainfall, you're gonna protect the soil surface from the impact force of the raindrop. Um, so, because if that raindrop just drops on the bare ground, then it, it destroys that uh, structure on the surface, it creates crust, and then the infiltration goes down. So covering it is great. Uh, and then there's diverse, diverse crop rotation. So, so these three uh, are key. Why? Because they, they help, help build organic matter in the soil. They, they put the carbon, they store the carbon, sequester carbon in the soil. And with that, over time comes the better soil structure. Soil structure is key in water movement. Uh, it's gonna help you increase infiltration and also it's gonna help water that's moving in, you know, on near the surface. Uh, inside the soil because it, with that you're going to get water is going to reach the drain pipe quicker and that's going to be key so that's that's my first thing that i'm tip here that the soil health is key that's going to have to be uh, a very very important part of the system because if the soil health let's say you got a the soil health is poor you have poor structure let's say the soil has poor structure then that water infiltration is gonna be slow. No matter you've got the world's best drainage system, that's still gonna be slow. So soil health, that's why it comes first. It's very important. So what about other things? So we talked about, we don't wanna have underperformance, we wanna improve soil health. Um, and then let's say you got a system already, there's certain 
examples of things that you could do, you have a system and you want to see what you can do. So for I show that first one, one, the first thing you could do if you have one, and that's typical, um, it happens is that let's say you got, um, let's say 30 feet spacing, drain tile spacing 30, for example, and then you just go in and split it in half, then you go into 15. That's going to help you take care and take the water away much quicker because you're going into a half of a drain spacing from a 30 to 15, as an example I'm giving you. Um, but you're going to have to put a lot of investment in that, and you, that may be necessary for your setting. So there are ways to find out uh, you know, if that's going to be something useful. And we have a drainage school uh, in March every year, and we, we teach, we all go over those concepts, how to come up with those ideas and how to determine is this overkill or is this something you're going to need? So that's my first one, the, you know, going with a narrower drain tile spacing. Um, another one is that there's this mold drain, uh, mold drain idea that you can actually, either you can have just a farm with just mold drains or you can actually add it to a subsurface drainage system. And also you can also add surface drainage to the system. That surface drainage I'll, I'll get to that. So let's get to the mold drain. This is the mold plow that is pulled by the tractor. And you can see it creates this um, narrow opening in the soil. Uh, when, when, the, when this plow is pulled, this bullet goes through the soil and it creates this um, channel. We call it a mold plow. So this is what it's going to look like when it goes in a diagram form. And you can see all of these cracks. These help water move down. Another application of this mold plow is that if you have a compacted surface soil from, let's say, there were wet conditions and the field operation um, happened on that wet condition and then you got compaction. So this is one way you could break up, help with that compaction. For this, this is going to help, uh, you know, remove some of the water quicker because these are shallower. You can see the, the 16 to 24 inches here. You can see some of the cracks you can see on the, on the right side. There, there's, a, a, again, extension bulletin and also a web page on the website. Just search for MSU drainage. You'll go to the MSU drainage website. There's a full page about the details of what's suitable and um, you know, where you would do use these, these mold drains. They are common. These mold drains, I can tell you that they're common in Europe, New Zealand, and they're very successful. You're going to have to run them every four to five years, three to five years. But it's, it's much less cost costly than having a drainage system. Another one is combining the surface drainage with subsurface. You can see... Um, this is to prevent the surface water ponding, but without causing erosion, that's key. That's why having a cover on the soil is going to be key. So the soil is protected. So the soil is not just bare, so that the excess water can flow over the naturally or artificially sloping ground towards those shallow ditches and grass waterways. You can see in this image, these ditches, shallow ditches, they, they have a green color to it because they, they have vegetation inside to, to keep they're shallow to keep from erosion. And you can see one, one of the key things here is that the land leveling is, is gonna be part of it. This is, these are again common in 
um, other parts of the United States, like the Southeast, like in North Carolina, they get intense rainfall. And this helps it because there's so much that the soil can take in terms of the infiltration. When the heavy rainfall comes, I mean, so, so, I mean that infiltration can take so much. So having, this is a, another thing that, in my opinion, that's going to be useful as we move in the years to come in the future, as these heavy rainfalls come. And this is one way, another way that you could work with that. And so we talked about on the performance influence soil health, and you, you know you have a drainage system. But if you're going with a new system, you can you should consider the surface drainage, and uh, you can consider the surface drainage and also the mole drains. But another thing you can consider is the shallow drains. Um, this is something typical that in Michigan, if you're calling, if you're joining from Michigan, this is something that drainage contractors already do. The shallow drains are 28, 30 inches distance from the soil surface to the bottom of the pipe that's laid in the ground. This is typical. It has lots of great benefits. And then there's a pipe material that also is also important. This, this is a topic I talked about in June, the second one. So the shallow drains that come with the narrower drain spacing, they lower the water level more quickly. So if you have one of these, be sure that you, know, you, you have faster drainage than if you had put them deeper. And they help retain more moisture in the root zone. It's better for the crop, uh, reduces risk of crop, uh, crop drought stress during the dry years. It increases crop yield under certain conditions. We did research on that. This is from my own roof research. Uh, again, there's a webpage details about these things, reduces year-to-year -year crop yield variability from year one to year two and so on. You get relatively steadier than if you have a deeper drainage system. So another positive there, reduces the total water drain and have fewer days of flow. So during these times of the year, it typically, you know, trickles or just stops flowing. And the total amount of water drains is less, and that leads to less nitrate loss it's better for water quality <clears throat> and it's not limited to only like uh, flat surfaces like say let's say control drainage systems it can work on any so there's so so much benefits with that i'd like to um, move on to so that's the shallow drains we already have that so i don't want to spend too much time on that so the drainage uh, one of another research that we did recently was we looked at the pipe material this one i've talked about in june during the virtual breakfast. And you can see um, that let's move on to the, to the summary of that same topic is that when you're looking for a pipe and you don't have, you have an undrained farm, you, you're thinking I'm gonna invest in the drainage system, definitely it's gonna pay back really well if you invest in the drainage system. Uh, but when you're doing that, Make sure you look for, if you want to remove water quicker, then the eighth row is going to be your answer to that rather than the four row. For the same material cost, you can drain faster with the eight row pipe than a four for the same material cost. That's, that's, that's a bonus there. Um, so if you have a, so there's two, two conditions. If you have a drain sedimentation issue with the soil, again, there's uh, information on the drainage website, more details. The sock wrap pipe has fastest drainage. I showed in the previous slide quickly that about 29% faster drainage than a four row sand slot pipe. 
So that, that's very important. If you don't have one, the atrial is going to be the fastest drainage. Again, if, you're, if you don't have it and you want to install one. My last slide here, this is a summary. I want to emphasize the water quality and crop productivity. This is, this is very important. Um, so I call these the, the foundations or the pillars of having water quality and crop productivity is the soil health. I talked briefly about it. Nutrient management, the four R, you put the right amount, right time. And this, this is very important. And also water management, that's very important. Water management, by that I mean that you have a system like a control drainage system where you manage amount of water that leaves the farm. So these three, these three need to work together. There's research that shows that, let's say if you have, let's say one of these, let's say you have a no-till and you surface broadcast, then the nutrients are gonna leave. That's why it needs a water management and the system to, to help with, with that nutrient leaving the farm. That's precious, valuable, expensive nutrients these days. Um, so so these, these three need to work together for improved quality, water quality and boost yield. Again, it's key, these three working together, soil health, nutrient management, water management. So with that, I would stop sharing and finish the talk. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Um, so Jeff, I think is gonna take over from here and uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on outside. Well, thanks, Sarah, and, and good morning to everyone. It's a it, it's a beautiful morning in most spots of the state here, and and uh, really signaling the change. And, and and some one of the themes we're going to talk about this morning is what a difference a week makes. Certainly, in <laughs> certainly in terms of humidity and temperature, uh, because we're looking at a now a, a, a relatively cool and dry forecast. That that's the the take home here, at least for at least the next week and maybe longer than that. Uh, if we look at the last week here, though, it, it really depended on where you where you are uh, in the state. There was a weather system across the upper Midwest that was just almost painfully slow in, in terms of its movement. And you can see the some of the results of that in, in terms of the mean temperatures for the last week uh, to the south and to the east of that system. Uh, no question, uh, much, much warmer than normal temperatures here. Very humid. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but to the north and west of the system, across especially central and western upper upper Michigan here, the uh, you can see the temperature departures actually in some cases were negative. But one more thing too about the south, especially as you get down into southern lower Michigan here, some cases uh, our mean temperatures for the week were four, five, six degrees Fahrenheit, significantly warmer than normal. But it's also this is probably uh, makes sense. But much of that departure came at night. We had unusually warm or mild minimum temperatures during the last week, and there's there's one really important physical reason for that, and that's the humidity. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Precip-wise, we did, in some areas, we did very well uh, with precipitation. Uh, on the right-hand side here, the yellows, two inches or more for the week. In some cases, we had better than three inches. You can see over much of the southeastern lower 
widespread, uh, well, more than two inches. Also another area in northwestern lower Michigan. And, and, and that one is especially important because that was an area, uh, well, certainly that has been drier and had issues with uh, with lack of water. But most of the state here, you can see solid one half to one inch totals. A little bit less in some spots uh, in the central lower. Again, that's a, another area, of course, we've been watching carefully, uh, but uh, many areas did pick up significant precip during the week. Which brings me to the raw material of precip, and of course that's water vapor. And looking at our humidity, there's a lot on this, but I just wanted to, uh, talk about last week because again, if it seemed unusually muggy, uncomfortable, it's it was because it was truly, truly very, very humid here. Um, and I've I've used the period here, the third through the eighth. That was really the core of this. But that's when that that weather system I mentioned earlier that set up over the Upper Midwest essentially just stalled and very, very slowly edged through the region. On the upper right hand side here, uh, you these are. Dew point temperatures, and what, what are dew point? Dew point temperature is another way of telling how much water vapor is in the air, how much how much water vapor is physically there. It doesn't have to do with with the air temperature, but it, it it does. It is just physically how much water vapor is there. The higher the dew point temperature, the more the water vapor. And what you can see here is that you, this this big synoptic pattern over the Midwest. You can clearly see that with dew points over much of of central and southern lower Michigan in excess of 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, what does that mean? It means it was really, really humid, uh, very, very uncomfortable. Anytime the dew point temperature goes above 70, uh, it, it, we as, as humans are, are really gonna feel discomfort because the way we cool down, of course, is is sweat and perspiration and the evaporation of that and the consumption of energy. Uh, and it, the more the water vapor that's out there, the slower that takes place. So that, that's why we, we feel uncomfortable. But the other thing is from a climatological note, we just don't see 70 degree dew points here in, in our part of the world in the upper Midwest that often. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not common to see. And last week here on the right-hand side here, this is a mediagram taken from uh, one of the uh, EnviroWeather sites on campus at the uh, uh, Trevor Nichols uh, Research, uh, or Hancock, sorry, uh, Research Center here on campus at College and, uh, and Mount Hope Roads. And on the top here in the red, the air temperatures are in the red. And you can easily see, this is again, the third through the eighth, you can see the diurnal cycle. But below that, in this brown color that I'm, I've got by the cursor, that's the dew point temperature. And again, we don't see 70 degree dew point temperatures very often, but we did here for almost a solid six days. And you can see that the air temperature, it does move up during the day as the sun's out and things heat up and then moves down. And remember too, that the dew point temperature serves as a little bit of a break on how far the air temperature can cool at night. Because once we once the air temperature goes down to the dew point temperature, we get condensation and release of more heat and that slows down the cooling. So the, the dew point temperature acts as a little bit of a floor on how far the air temperature falls at night. So that's a major reason why I said the temperatures were six degrees above normal, a lot of it was night, that's the reason. But it, again, as you look at this, this graphic here and look at this, again, a solid six day period where we're at 70 degrees, that's, that's just something we don't see very often. Below that, uh, we have relative humidity in red 
And then the uh, blue green color, that's when the leaf wetness sensor is on. And you can probably imagine, well, part of it, it was very, very uncomfortable in terms of, of people. But the other issue is here that we had ex extended leaf wetting events on a daily basis. You can see that happen here. Uh, many of them were at least 12 hours long, which is also unusual. Climatologically, it's also important to note that August in terms of humidity is where we see higher humidity than any other month on average. Some of that spills into uh, July ahead of it. Some of it spills into September after it. But as far as a solid month or the single month, August climatologically is our most humid month. But even that, we were we were beyond that. And if you're wondering, well, how often does a dew point temperature in, in Michigan go up to 70 or above? And uh, it's it's not much. Uh, 5% of the time, something like that. That's what this graphic shows here. It actually shows there's some diurnal dependence too. It's much more likely to see those 70 degree dew points during the daytime hours and much less likely at night when the, the air temperature drops. But we had we had both of those happening last week. And so again, uh, you can see some of the statistics here, 76 degrees. This is again from East Lansing, 83% uh, was the average relative humidity. That's, that's a, also amazing. Remember that during the day, we typically go down to less than 50%, 55% almost in terms of the leaf wetness of that time, that six day time frame going on and, and 66 hours at 100% of the hour. Uh, these are these are unusual. This is this would not even be a little unusual in the Gulf Coast. But uh, here again in, in Michigan, we saw that uh, take place last week is and uh, for disease, plant disease, this is obviously an issue. So that's something to keep an eye on. Some of these conditions are ideal for fungal pathogens. And, and we, we may get a comment on that here later on. So a, a very, very human week. I started to spend some time on that, but it, it is one of those things that's sort of an oddity. If it seemed unusual, it's because it was truly unusual climatologically. In terms of dryness, uh, the rainfall, as I mentioned, helped in many areas, but uh, we still do have a number of spots in the state that uh, that that really are lacking still uh, or below normal for water for this time of the year for the first half of August, but it is better than it was uh, a couple weeks ago in, in general. Uh, degree day totals, the same pattern we've seen all season, and it reflected that weekly temperature pattern, uh, minor deficits in far northern parts of the state in the upper peninsula, uh, maybe a few days behind, uh, two surpluses as you go south, especially along the Indiana and Ohio lines. In some cases now, those surpluses, and this is a, a seasonal value starting on the 1st of May, uh, but some of those were, were up about 200 units now. So at least a week, calendar week ahead of normal uh, in, in the far southern part of the states, but the same spatial pattern that we've had before. Well, very, very straightforward forecast uh, to talk about here this morning. We had another frontal boundary pass through the state uh, late yesterday. And as we speak here, and you can see that that now has uh, just cleared the southern border of the state. There were a couple of isolated showers with that. You can see there's uh, actually one down here in southeastern lower, uh, but uh, exception almost doesn't do it justice. Isolated is the, the word here. We may see a few more sprinkles at a couple spots, but basically, High pressures moving in from the northwest. You can see that big uh, blue H here over southwestern Ontario. Uh, that that's our that's our dominant weather feature here for the next uh, couple of days. And uh, well, it's in Canada. It's of Canadian origin, so we're looking at uh, a cool, dry type of weather pattern setting up. This is this is the first major piece of that 
cooler air. It's actually in the mid 40s in uh, portions of, of uh, the UP and the interior northern lower here this morning is a, just a reflection on how much cooler and drier that air is. But for the southeastern part of the state, which was the last to see that funnel passage, you'll notice winds will shift around to the north here today and it will be noticeably less humid and cooler. High temperatures today only in the 70s across the state. Lows tonight, 40s north to 50 south and that's where we're going to be for the next several days here's the weather map for tomorrow at 8 a.m again high pressure firmly entrenched right over the middle of the great lakes region another sunny fair dry day and then by saturday the next weather system approaches from the west but most of the day i think will be uh, should be fair and dry as well uh, with with a few increasing clouds late the next chance for any rain, any significant rain, and this is probably true for the entire upcoming week, will be uh, most of the state overnight on Saturday and into Sunday with a chance for, we'll call it scattered showers. Many areas will pick up some rain, but it doesn't look like a major producer in terms of major amounts. The uh, totals here in the gauge projected through next Thursday, in most cases, a quarter of an inch or less. So a drier than normal week is uh, I, I think a very, very high likelihood or probability. And much of what you see here again would be falling over the latter part of the, the last half of the weekend, mostly Saturday night and on Sunday. After that or beyond that, it's looking again, fair, dry and cool. You could pick up a theme here uh, in the forecast and that could be the case for much of next week uh, as we, uh, and I'll show you here in the medium range, there's a consistency with that as well. Potential evapotranspiration rates, and this is the reference value again uh, that we use for irrigation management with the cool dry forecast, uh, a little bit below normal. And that's mainly because the cooler than normal temperatures, most spots between 1.1 and 1.2 inches, which is a few hundredths of an inch below what we would typically see uh, during the second week of, uh, of August. So a little bit less than normal. Into the medium range, more of a theme. Uh, there, there actually are some differences between the six to 10 day and eight to 14 days. I'll mention that in a second, but it, the theme is here. It's important to look at the upper air, the jet stream forecast pattern here, because it's sort of where we're going right now. But as we've seen all summer, the, the location of this big ridge that's been parked over portions of North America, and we've had the heat dome with that and all sorts of heat warnings and advisories associated with that. The, the axis of that is so important. Where does that gonna, where's that anomalous weather or strange weather gonna set up? This, this uh, the guidance is strongly suggesting it's gonna be further west. So we're probably with this uh, particular forecast here, you can see for the 16th through the 20th, setting up over the, the Western part of North America, probably looking at the development of a heat wave in places like the Pacific Northwest, uh, maybe California, uh, but it's certainly the Northwest and then up in British Columbia. But notice here over Eastern North America, a big trough. Northwesterly flow aloft. So that means the, well, the air mass that's uh, on its way here for the state for the next few days, it's not the last one. There'll be, there'll be at least one, maybe two more. And as a result of that, we're looking at a fairly strong likelihood of cooler than normal mean temperatures here for at least the next week and probably longer. Uh, at the same time with Northwesterly flow aloft, and with uh, a really a frontal boundary, sort of a stationary frontal boundary expected to set up over portions of the southern U.S. to our south, that's going to limit moisture transport north out of the Gulf of Mexico. Most of the rainfall is going to be to our to our south, and uh, we probably will end up on the drier side as well. That's the other theme. Eight to 14 day is similar to this, but it does, there's some hints, and it does suggest 
that by the third week in the month or, or at the end of that, maybe we'll see a, a, a de-amplification, and I'll believe that when I see it, of the jet stream because it's been amplified for much of the, much of the season, but maybe a, train, a change or transition into a different pattern here by uh, late in the month. But for the next one to two weeks, most of it is pointing in that cool and drier than normal uh, direction. And so summarizing here, uh, once again, uh, cool, dry is, is, is where most of the forecasts are taking us. Next chance for anything significant uh, coming late in the weekend, overnight Saturday and Sunday for precip, but, but temperatures a few degrees below the climatological normals where they typically are. And that, that's, a, I think, a fairly strong bet. Uh, but very pleasant to be outdoors and outside in those areas, though, that need water. This, this is still, uh, again, a continuing concern because we, we're not looking for much or certainly below normal precip totals this week. And as you just saw, probably into the medium range uh, time frame as well. And with that, I'll shift gears and uh, introduce our next week's virtual breakfast speaker, and that's Dr. Matt Gammons, uh, who's an agricultural economist. And Matt's going to be talking about carbon market updates, something that's changing rapidly here. And, and he, uh, he very, very uh, skilled and keeps up on this topic. So don't, uh, don't miss next Thursday morning's virtual breakfast. And with that, I'll stop and turn it back over to Sarah and or Phil. Oh, thanks, Phil. Um, we have just a few questions for Hassan in here, if Hassan's uh, still available with us. Yeah. So one of the questions Hassan was, do the mold, um, the mold plow drains, do they work better um, with a certain kind of soil? Yep. That, so that, that's a good question. Like I mentioned, the mold plows are common in, in Europe and other parts, in some other parts. And in terms of the soil, the, the more the clay, the better, because when the, when the bullet is pulled with the, uh, with the mold plow inside the soil and that cavity, that channel that's created, uh, if it's sandy, then it's just not going to work. It's just right. going to collapse back again, but it needs more and more clay. So the minimum, the best scenario is to have your minimum 45% clay content, minimum 45% and uh, less than 20% sand, uh, the less the sand, the better. That would be the ideal, that would be, uh, that, in that condition, the molding is gonna last for longer time, up to probably even five or longer number of years. But even the minimum, for the bare minimum, if you, if, if you wanna have a mold rain would be 35% clay, um, that would be the minimum. But, more than 45 would be the, just the ideal, the best scenario. So look for 35% clay. And there are many uh, parts of the state with that 35% clay, especially the, the Michigan Tom, South, Southeast, and some, some locations are going to have that. There's some places in and the UP. Or... Especially, so one of the discussions we had about this earlier was that uh, in, in some parts, like the UP, for example, where there's hay and some other crops that have less cash value, less value that just really doesn't justify an expensive uh, subsurface tile drainage system because those could, per acre, you could be paying something like $3,000 to $5,000 per acre. So that, that's really expensive, right? So for a place like UP, a mold drain uh, would be really good. There's clay and there's, you know, uh, you know, it's suitable. It just doesn't 
the crop doesn't justify that huge investment. Mm -hmm. So I would try, I mean, I'm, I'm available if anybody has more questions, my contact, uh, just search for MSU drainage, and then my mm -hmm. contact would be on the drainage website. If anybody has more questions. Great. Um, we have one more question in the, in the chat. It says, do you need a permit to run a field tile into a county road ditch? Um, I know the answer to this. I don't. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, well, I feel like that I need to parse out this question for a second because um, if the ditch is owned by the County Road Commission or is the ditch owned by the County Drain Commission? So is it a county ditch? And, um, and who's actually maintaining that as one of the first questions you would have to ask, answer. Um, <laughs> And then, um, so if it's a county drain, I believe you have to get a permit by the 1963 drainage law. So um, that would be something that you'd have to look into if it's a county drain. Um, and if it's a county road ditch and it's maintained by the county road commission, I would still ask permission because if they need a chance to armor the ditch, from extra water coming in that won't erode the roadbed, I think that that's a fair, a fair thing to do. So, what do you think about my answer, Asan? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, there's a, a answer. Another participant answered the you know road commission, but basically, uh, just call, give a call to the drain commissioner's office. I mean, they they probably will give you the best and right specific answer for your location. Mm -hmm. Right, and so each county is going to have a different process for that permit. Great. Um, I, in my experience, a lot of people think that what they're looking at is a county drain, and it's probably not. Um, so it, it really varies from place to place how much is under the county's purview. Um, all right. Do you run the mole plow into a ditch or just put it into the hard pan and let it dissipate? Can I share a screen? Yeah. I don't know whose screen is sharing right now. Jeff's, okay. Yes, yeah, so the answer is that uh, yeah, you, run, you run these into the ditch. So this is the bulletin that I mentioned on the website. So you run them in the ditch. Uh, so like I mentioned, you, you could have a standalone system for just mold. Just let's say you're in the UP as an example, and you don't have a tile drainage system and you just want a mold drain and you would. So these mold drains, um, they look something like this. So the mold drains are going to have to just go straight drain in, you know, end up in the ditch. So the water can go go going to the ditch has actually drain out. So that's one, that, that, that's, that's a correct answer there that you mentioned that if it, does it have to go into the ditch? Yes. Another way is that let's say you have the pipe and you wanna increase that even more. And this is something that is again in the literature and you can actually combine them. If you look at the one on the left, um, yeah, but, but these have to go, I mean, so let me mention it. You may be calling in. So um, the mold drains have to be perpendicular to the 
direction of the plastic pipe perpendicular that's going to help the water movement the best so again the mold drains go perpendicular to the plastic pipe tile drains um, that and then they will uh, then in that case you could either depending on the it's going to be site specific again depending on the site you may be able to actually end up in a ditch if you can't the the one i'm showing on the right side is basically you you have every every so many lateral drains you have a trench and then you backfill the trench with gravel and then when the tile the the mobile runs through that it goes through this system that is highly permeable because it's got gravel in there so that what so this this trench acts like a drainage ditch just like similar to that because water comes in it goes in there and then it ends up in the drainage pipe and then it heads heads downstream to the outlet so there are combinations that you can do so there's more information on that website more, more specifics of information but that was a good question thanks we've got another um question but not about drainage it's for phil or if kim is on um night there's some nightshade growing in a new hay seeding about one plant per 10 square feet based on their description any danger in feeding this hay the field was manured this spring and planted with oats nurse crop oats was already baled off and the nightshade was growing up in the regrowth Sarah, I know that Kim is not on today, so I'll take that question. Nightshade is highly toxic, as you already know, probably, Steve. So it's one of those things where it's, the amounts do matter. And what, I, what I'm thinking is that since the amounts matter, the amount of hay that you actually are taking off of that field at this point uh, will have smaller amounts of the alfalfa because it's a new seeding, you're not gonna have huge amounts. And so you would have a higher percentage of that nightshade in whatever is harvested, which could cause a problem. So based on the fact that we are uh, looking at getting maybe one cutting at this point, you may want to just chop that back onto the field and not feed it. Uh, you may have opportunities to uh, cut that annual plant off and it won't come back. But I would expect that uh, if the amounts are great enough, it could cause problems for any livestock that are eating that particular forage. I know that's not a great answer, but it's probably the best one that I've got. Uh, we can certainly run it by Kim later on, but I would be hesitant. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. All right, that's all the questions that we have in the chat. Can I? Take yeah. a minute. Uh, so for the audience that are here, um, we I encourage you to sign up the field crops, our team, we have a field day. So again, remember MSU drainage, MSU space drainage, that's just search term. You take it, it'll take you to this website. We have a field day coming up, and that field day is pretty much going to be uh, covering what the last thing that I mentioned about linking the soil health, the nutrient management, water management, so that at the end of the day, we can get improved water quality and boost yield. So that's going to be the theme of that field day. I encourage you to join us on that day. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have live tire cloud demonstration. It's going to be uh, with the Michigan Leica 
partnering with the Land Improvement Contractors Association. It's going to be great uh, focusing on, like I mentioned, the soil health management, water management. Yeah, thanks for reminding everybody of that. That's uh, it's going to be a good day, I think. We've got all the food and everything ready to go. So, um, well, we had a question: Is there any tar spot showing? So, Marty, are you on? Yeah, I'm here. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, there is. Um, there's probably about seven or so counties now where we've got reports of tar spot. Um, there's going to be a lag too between weather events and tar spot showing up. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, in terms of making fungicide decisions, um, it's difficult for sure. Um, so, it, I mean, it really depends on how the rest of the season plays out. Um, and, and I was kind of curious if Jeff can maybe comment about dew points, I guess predicted dew points, given the cooler and drier, um, you know, conditions that we're, we're going to experience or predicted and how that might play into things. But, um, yeah, it and, and then the timing of fungicides. So there have been applications made. Um, in late August, where we do see protection from tar spot and you know, protect, yield protection. But we've got to remember those are in situations where disease was building, right? So there were wet conditions. Um, so I would definitely be out scouting your fields. Um, it's out there. It's inoculum has basically spread all over the state from the last couple of years. Um, so get out and scout. And that would, you know, that's what I would use to help make those decisions. And as a follow-up to uh, to Marty's question, a very, very different uh, situation with dew point and humidity relative to what we had last week, again, which was extreme on the other end. Uh, dew points over the next upcoming week and maybe longer down into the, even in the upper 40s and, and 50s, there will be some dew uh, on a diurnal cycle. You also uh, note that uh, less than normal rainfall, so we won't have that source of water on foliage. It'll there'll, there'll be some dew overnight, but it'll be much much less the duration of that that water on the foliage than what we saw last week, which was extraordinary. Great, thank you, Marty. I have a follow up question on that tar spot and fungicide application. When is the latest that you would consider a spray? Yeah, that's a good question, Phil. So I guess. If, yeah, so, you know, you're going to spray or you're not going to spray and then when, right? So let's assume we're going to make the application because we just want to, we've made that commitment that we're going to do that. I wouldn't go any later um, than August um, because, you know, especially if you're pushing into September there, now you've really, you know, the time between um, protection and uh, black layer is, is, you know, minimal, right? So, you want to protect for as long as you can, but obviously you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to be spraying vegetative corn because that, that spray is absolutely useless now. So um, I personally, I wouldn't go any later, um, you know, than mid to late August. Um, those fungicides will provide protection for about three weeks, you know, thereabouts. Um, and so that's, that's where I would be um, looking at things. Great. I think that's uh, 
the only question that we had in the chat. So is there, and are there any other updates from any specialists on that they would like to share? Okay, hearing none. I think that um, we're kind of wrapping up here this morning. So thank you for attending.